You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to The Buzz, brought to you by the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. And Fran, how I just told you I was ready, I wasn't actually ready. <laughs> I had two more things to do. But Hey, I uh, want to ask you a question. Now that we've been doing yeah. this and my nose surgery was a few months ago, do you still feel I, I don't sound different? No difference. All right. I've had people yeah. come back after the fact and say, now that I've been listening, I hear a difference. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like my vote, my voice is a little deeper. I just wanted to revisit it to see if you wanted but to change your vote. I hear every day, so it's yeah, that's all, true. almost every day, that's five true. days a week. So it's <laughs> you, uh, you hear it's it like too those, much. It, it's it is interesting because I'm like it's those subtle changes you don't notice, and um, it's the same thing with our our, our son or my son mm-hmm. is like you don't notice those day to day changes, but then you go back and look at a picture from. A year ago, and it's like, oh my god, he was so much. He didn't even look anything like himself. And even we, he stayed at uh, his grandparents for last weekend. And it's like after two days, like you talk so much more than you used to. There's so many things that are different. And over a two day span, you notice it a little more. You know, it's funny. The uh, a week or two ago, I was going back and cleaning out voice messages on my phone, mm-hmm. and I have voice messages from my kids from like five, six years ago. Yeah. Like, wow, listen to the difference in your voice. That's amazing. But Mm -hmm. you don't realize it over time. No, no. But when you go back and hear it, you're like, yeah, wow, Mm -hmm. that was, because I guess it's a little bit, little nuances over time. But But this is, uh, again, like Fran said, the buzz, it's episode 109. We're very happy to have everyone here. And we have some really great native plant information to to dispel today. But uh, like we've been starting out the last dozen or so episodes uh, or buzz episodes, let's do a little bit of uh, follow up and feedback um, the first thing we want to do is, is actually give a big thank you to Alyssa Lewis because all these promises we make say, Hey, we want to do this and do that. <laughs> she's been one keeping us on the ball, uh, behind the scenes. And then, um, and then two, she's actually going in the Facebook group and saying, Hey, Tom's friend talked about this. So everyone which give is, your feedback uh, now, which is wonderful. Perfect. Yeah. I'm, I mean, we, we can't thank you enough. There were a couple things in the last buzz, uh, episode one Oh seven, where we said, we'll ask our listeners in the yeah. Facebook group. And Alyssa kind of took the reins mm-hmm. and, and, Put those questions on there so yeah. people could discuss them, and and I th- added a lot of that feedback later on for our uh, yeah. discussion topic, so we can cover a lot of that. There, there. there were a lot of great discussions, uh, and we appreciate that. But speaking about members dis- uh, having great discussions as well, as we've had a lot of new members over the last two weeks, we've had over mm-hmm. two hundred new members. Yep. Not quite sure what the influx is, but we appreciate it and we want to welcome everyone. And we do want to just kind of, I've had to block more posts. In the last two weeks, and we've had in the last two years. Yeah. Um, so just like remember the rules, like it's not for self promotion or spam. Uh, it's it's having these great conversations. Yeah, um, yeah. The the original goal of the group was to kind of give a platform to have more in depth discussions about what we talked about right here on the podcast. We have a, like last week we had an awesome guest in Rebecca McMacken. That was kind of a place to kind of go and have a, a discord about the things she talked about. Hey, I really liked when she said this, or I didn't like when she said that, and kind of have a little back, friendly back and forth. Yeah. Um, acknowledge that maybe you don't always agree, but kind of dive a little bit deeper into these topics. So, um, and yeah, we don't mind the, the garden. We encourage the garden quick pictures and the questions about, hey, I'm yeah. trying to grow this and I can't find it in the seed or I, 
I'm having trouble with it. That's the that's or we the have this. You know, yeah. one of the things I love to see. Uh, Skip Burns just posted, I think, mm-hmm. uh, just the other day that uh, he w- got involved and and got involved with a, a a nonprofit that that you and I we haven't had on the podcast, but we've done mm-hmm. a talk for and um, you know how he's gotten involved and how it played out and. Mm-hmm. It, it was wonderful to see that progress, and even though that he was trying to get people to come out and help volunteer, I didn't really view that as self-promotion because Skip has been involved since the beginning, yeah. and it's wonderful to see mm-hmm. that progress, and he's very active in the group. If if you're a first-time poster and your post is getting people to your YouTube channel or, or getting people to – your Facebook page, like denied, yeah, we're friends on top of that. (laughs) We, (laughs) we've stopped it. You know, if you don't use a real name, we're not accepting the membership. And if you try to join as a page, we're not accepting it. And a lot of the reason, unless you're a past is, yeah, we've, we've had so much, um, we've, we've griped about it a lot, how a lot of these other groups get very combative and, uh, that's not what we need to spread a native plant message. And, uh, one of the things we've been really proud of is how friendly this group has been. And um, and while there may be some disagreements, it's it's been uh, it hasn't been hostile. It's been very hospitable, and uh, and we want to keep that yeah. vibe going. And That's a big thing to us. We've even had listeners instead of uh, saying something combative, uh, just report a post saying, "Hey, this really doesn't have anything to do with native plants. Yeah. Can we just you know?" And we and we look at that and we we take care of it. So for the most part, it's it's been wonderful. I've just thought it would be a good reminder to. To talk about yeah, the roles, yeah, definitely. And Fran, you had an update that you needed to give because uh, you didn't know which direction your house faced, and uh, and I, I had did. a guess. And what is I your guess? If, I didn't. I say it faced west. Yeah. It, okay. It's due south. You walk mm-hmm. out. You walk out my front door. It's your south on the nose. So cool. I didn't know that, but yeah. now I know, and it's really important. I'm like, oh, I I love that I have a, yeah. a southern exposure. But that was a little follow up because I. Gave a little uh, a teaser about the book I was going to talk about today, and we're going to talk about that later. And that was one of the questions in that book for discovering your hometown habitat was when you open your, your – when you look out your front window or you go out your front door, which direction are you looking? And I had no yeah. idea. Now I know. <laughs> so, well, with that, why don't we get into uh, the segment we always start with, and that's the plants we're vibing with this week. Let's get into That's Hot. That's Hot. Brian, why don't you go first? Sure. So you know, it's it's funny. I I I, I was just on the nursery the other day with Cass Urban Mead, uh, previous guest, who's with the Xerces Society, and we were taking some photos for an upcoming uh, uh, Xerces. We're supplying some plant material for Xerces packages for grants that that Skip Burns applied for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only thing really in bloom at the time that we went down there was Harry Beertongue, which is Penstemon hirsutus. Mm-hmm. And I think was it you or your brother that posted on the Pinelands Nursery the video, uh, with the insect activity. It was probably my brother. Yeah. So there were, we we recently did a video on Penstemon hirsutus, but I thought it it was a great plant to reflect on, and I kind of liked how you've used descriptions from other mm-hmm. uh, sites. So I decided to use one from Wildflower.org. Um, and their description is erect hairy stems, usually several uh, from the same rhizome, rhizome. They're 16 to 24 inches tall. Leaves are oblong, a woolly stem plant with open stalk clusters of lavender, trumpet-shaped flowers with white lips. Uh, the tubular lip flowers are very slender, which are about an inch long, and pale violet flowers. The mouth is nearly closed by the arched base of the lower lip. Beer tongues are a very large group, taxonomically so complex that separating the species is often difficult. 
species is readily distinguished, however, by the downy nature of the stem. Uh, the common and scientific names referred to the tufted sterile stamen. So it's, mm-hmm. you, you know, where uh, Penstemon digitalis is that white flower. This definitely has that like uh, a purple hue. Yeah, purple hue to it, and the, it's it's covered with insects, mm-hmm. which is lovely to see. So yeah. you go down there, you see all the activity. And that's what we're always talking about, bee butts, because they go in the tubular flowers, and you just see the butts sticking out. So it's thought it was a great choice given the, the time. Yeah, period. it's it's really looks great right now. And um, and the one I picked this week is uh, also something that's, that's blooming. I'm just starting to wrap up, actually, a little bit. But um, And I know I've picked it before. I just love it so much. And that's Baptisia australis, which is blue wild indigo. Such a great, great choice. It really yeah. is. It's it's. Yeah, it's, it's a favorite of mine. Now, here's one of the things. My brother actually said this, and then I was like, yeah, that makes sense, and I kind of noticed that too. But he he keeps really good uh, phenological records of when things bloom around our property each year. And he said that we're about two weeks behind where we had been uh, traditionally and then even last year. And uh, and it's typically our Baptisia is really wrapped up by now. But, but uh, this year it's still just – well, it's starting to wrap up, but it's still blooming. And uh, what I found on Jersey Friendly Yards is that Blue Wild Indigo is a tall, bushy perennial with lupine-like purple flowers, which bloom from May or in May and June. The flowers are born in clusters at the top of tall stems, which extend above a mound of blue-green foliage. The flowers are followed by inflated seed, pot, seed pods, which turn black when ripe. Loose seeds inside the pod make a rattling sound when shaken, and the stems with the uh, seed pods are used in dried floral arrangements. Um, and it was traditionally used to make uh, a natural dye. And awesome. um, yeah, I just really love this plant because it is so unique and I love it because that it's not something you're probably going to get at home, but at our seed farm, we have it growing in rows. And if you think of those uh, lavender fields that you see in France and on the hillside, it, it reminds me of that because it's just perfect yeah. rows with the, the bluish like indigo stems coming up and it, it looks really, really cool. Especially I have some cool pictures of it at sunset where it, I I just really enjoy that. That's plant. awesome. And if you're yeah. growing it at home from seed, be patient because I believe oh, yeah. it takes what three years to get a bloom. At least, yeah, at least three years yeah. to get a bloom. So the plant has to have a little bit of uh, of uh, age to it mm-hmm. to get blooms. But once it hits that age, it's just such a spectacular plant. Like I think that's a, a really good choice. Yeah. So yep. Yeah, it's a plant I really enjoy. Awesome. Two fantastic choices. Uh, Man, you couldn't go wrong with either one of these. But I agree that we're late. Like I'm noticing a lot of iris in bloom mm-hmm. right now. We should yeah. really be past that, in my opinion. Yeah, and I'm um, surprised you didn't choose that one this week. But uh, uh, you know, I feel like I have, and I talked mm-hmm. about that one enough. And there's so many plants that we haven't focused yeah. on. I was trying to really get something that we hadn't talked about mm-hmm. before. We may have talked about. Pet- I think we have. Yeah, I, <laughs> I can't. It was a year ago at the at the very at least. Yeah. yeah, it was at least a year ago. So it's a good reminder. Yeah. But I, I just feel like there's so many wonderful plants that we haven't discussed that I'm trying mm. to to look for something that that we can bring to someone's attention. Yeah, so. Definitely. All right, that was good choices. So, you ready for? Yeah, let's move on to this week's botany based current events. Of course, we make it a competition. This is this or that. So, the last uh, episode 107, the articles were mine was native plant gardening for species conservation, and Tom's was uh, controlled arboretum burn leads to new grass species. And we do have a winner. I won fifteen to four, which really surprises me because I I loved both of those articles. Yeah, uh, but 
In, I, I don't know. I, I, think, I can't guess. I how think if gonna... in my article it had been like a true, like actually new discovery and not just a new discovery at that that location. Location. Oh, that's uh, maybe possibly. maybe I would have taken a little bit more of a, a lead there, but uh, no, nope, yeah. not this time. But so I I do get to choose whether to go first or defer. I'm going to go first okay. uh, just to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a little bit different. Just you know, I always feel like sometimes I, I'm I'm using an article that from a study from another continent, they don't always go over as well. But I thought this was interesting just based on some of the material and why. So uh, the name of this article is Hydroponic Native Plants to Detox PFAS Contaminated Water. Uh, And this article was on phys.org by the University of South Australia. Um, And just as a a preface, um, PFAS, it, they're a group of man-made chemicals that include uh, perfluorooctonic acid uh, and perfluoroctane sulfonate. Uh, they're manufactured and used in a variety of industries around the globe, including the United States since the 1940s. Uh, they're the most extensively produced and uh, studied of these chemicals. Both chemicals are persistent in the environment and the human body. Uh, meaning they don't break down, they accumulate over time. There's evidence that exposure to these can lead to adverse human health effects, and this is a concern in fire and emergency services because uh, fluorine-based Class B foams uh, contain PFAS. Yeah. And this was uh, that description was from RespondeHealth.com. So the article is. I'm just looking to see how long. Oh, it's not that long. Um, so I'll read the whole thing. Uh, they're on not. They're the non-stick on Teflon cookware. The stain resistance on Scotchgard and the suppression factor in firefighting foam. But while the staying power of PFAS chemicals was once revered, it's now infamous as PFAS substances continue to infiltrate the environment and affect human health. Now new research from the University of South Australia is helping to remediate the indestructible PFAS as scientists show that Australian native plants can significantly remediate PFAS pollutants through floating wetlands to create healthier environments for all. Conducted in partnership with CSIRO and the University of Western Australia, the research found that PFAS chemicals, per- and polyfluoralkyl substances, can be removed from contaminated water via Australian native rushes, which is Phragmites australis. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes. I mean, and, and this is a plant, I'll talk about it more, That that is a major invasive here yep. in North America. Um, Balmia articulata and juncus krausei phragmites australis otherwise known as common reed removed legacy pfas contaminants by 42 to 53 percent from contaminated surface water Uh, according to the u.s environmental protection agency exposure to pfas may lead to a range of health issues including a decline in fertility developmental delays in children increased risk of some cancer a reduced immune system higher cholesterol and risk of obesity uh, UNISA and CSIRO researcher Dr. John Awad uh, says that research could alleviate many of these environmental and health risks by providing a clean, green, and cost-effective method to remove PFAS from the environment. PFASs are often referred to as forever chemicals because they don't break down instead of instead accumulating in the environment in our bodies where they cause adverse health effects. In Australia, PFAS concerns often relate to the use of firefighting foam, especially legacy firefighting foam, which accumulates in the surface water of our waterways. 
Our research tested the effectiveness of Australian brushes to remove PFAS chemicals from our stormwater, finding that Phragmites australis was the most effective at absorbing chemicals through its root and shoots. The study all, uh, used constructed floating wetlands as a mechanism for plants to grow hydroponically. Dr. Iwad says um, floating wetlands present a novel and flexible way to natural remediation systems. Constructed floating wetlands can be readily installed uh, into existing urban environments such as holding reservoirs or retention basins, making them highly maneuverable and adaptable to local waterways. Plus, as an innovative water treatment system does not require pumping or the ongoing addition of chemicals, it's a cost-effective remediation system for PFAS removal. Add native plants to the mix, and we have delivered a truly clean, green, and environmental-friendly method for removing toxic PFAS uh, chemicals from contaminated water. So Tom and I have seen – we've worked with with companies where they have used cattails. Uh, I believe it was a a floating wetland system that was developed in Spain – where they've used it in wastewater mm-hmm. treatments to clean water. I know we just delivered um, plants up to New York to a to a wastewater treatment system where it's all removed by mm-hmm. by our driver said they took them into the facility and said by the first bay you couldn't smell yeah the the waste anymore. So it's kind of something that's being done in experimental mm-hmm. issues. Now, do we want to go bring a bunch of Phragmites australis over <laughs> here to to do it here? No. Uh, that that causes a greater environmental concern uh, because of the biodiversity it chokes out. We already have a major issue here, um, and it's banned in a lot of states as a, as a invasive. But it's it's a great way. Like there there has to be native plants here that may do the same. Cattails are one. Iris uh, versicolor is another one. Mm-hmm. We we know both of those have uh, both narrowleaf and and. Uh, broadleaf cattail have uh, phytoremediation properties, so um, I just love that nature finds a way and can can handle these man-made chemicals uh, in a natural way to to do it. So I just thought, even though it's it's a study elsewhere and it's being done with something that's invasive here, but environmentally friendly mm-hmm. in Australia uh, and and has wonderful benefits that way. So. Yeah, it's uh when when you. I first saw the Phragmites in here. I'm like, oh no! And the, oh yeah. yeah, it's in Australia, where yeah. that's where it's from, right? And um, but it is amazing how plants can can remediate uh, a lot, and not even just um, like natural. Uh, when I'm when you talk about wastewater, like yeah. human wastewater, uh, you have some natural contaminants, but even like man-made, manufactured mm-hmm. compa- contaminants. And I remember um, I had taken a trip to the uh, it was a class trip, and we went to the Lehigh Gap. Lehigh, what's it called? I just looked it up just to see. It's the Lehigh Gap Nature Center, and it's right along the Lehigh River, um, kind of near like Williamstown or Palmerton, PA. Oh, yeah. And um, and there was a, a zinc plant that was like across the river, but I guess the smoke or steam from the zinc plant, whatever it was, had contaminated a lot of the land on the other side of the river and then was actually going in the river and running uh-huh. down. And um, so... They had a lot of like phytoremediation they wanted to do, and uh, this now this was ten years ago or more when I did this, and so I should probably follow up with them and see if it worked or not, and stop saying how they they were doing it. But their whole thing is, I even think I talked about this on here before, but their whole thing was they wanted this meadow, they didn't want it to go into trees, and because the plants were taking up all these all basically all the zinc and like all the um, the the contaminants out of the soil, and uh, but if it went into 
the leaves of trees, if they let it go to trees, and then when the leaves, then the leaves fell, and the leaves eventually washed down back in the river and went down through well, all the, they're still yeah. put, putting contaminants elsewhere. So their idea was if we leave in a meadow and we just do controlled burns every once in a while, um, that should work. Their concern was, are we putting the heavy metals into the smoke and is it moving that way? Yeah. And um, that's where I should probably follow up with them. See. But it, that was the whole idea well, is we need to remove these heavy, heavy metals or at least stabilize the heavy metals here. Yeah. We can't let them keep going in the river every time it rains no. and washing downstream and polluting, I guess, uh, eventually the, the Delaware River. And I'm, I'm, I, 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 did we talk about this before? Because I, I, I want to bring up like there was a study being done at Liberty State Park, and I think I brought that up before mm-hmm. that they were realizing that like some of the pioneer forests were removing the heavy metal contaminants from Liberty State Park, mm-hmm. um, like things like birch uh, and frass growing things were, were doing a really good job at, at removing them from the soil and kind of phytoremediation. Uh, we had a customer probably like 10 years ago um, do a project where it was a 40-acre I, – I don't want to say the company, but it was a 40-acre created wetland mm-hmm. um, to, to clean – wastewater from the plant um mm-hmm. that it was in and it was doing an incredible job like they were looking at natural ways to do this and if you think about it like human like before human intervention and it was just animals it was <laughs> it wasn't affecting water because it was you know you have phytoremediation mm-hmm. happening yeah. all the time everywhere so it's it's just really understanding that and and is it scalable mm-hmm. <laughs> i guess that's the where there's there's a little more humans than there was, you know, oh, back yeah. then. Yeah, so. is, is it is the capacity of this capable of of even solving it for hundreds of millions of people, let alone billions of people? Yeah, or, like are you going to be able to spread stretch this worldwide and have it happening in India and Pakistan and China and yeah. and all over the globe, especially where our like our population centers are and. Is it going to work in those kind of scenarios? I don't know. I don't know um, either. I really don't. But it's – I love that the research is being done. Yeah, I always definitely. love articles where they're showing research like this where they're doing mm-hmm. it. So I just thought it was a, a good topic to bring up, definitely. and and I'm curious what you have this week. Yeah, so uh, so I went back to the well one more time. Oh. So thank you, what? Margaret Roach, for another great <laughs> article in my opinion. But uh, And this one, I had no issues getting this when I went to like the New York Times website. No paywall? I did not hit a paywall all right. at all. So if you hit a paywall – uh, complain in, in <laughs> complain amongst yourselves in the the chat on the vote, but uh, no, I, I I'm very hopeful you're not going to hit paywall. And, I uh, I have and, found because I've noticed when I'm looking at articles on the computer here, like mm-hmm. if I'll hit a paywall and it says you've reached your amount of free articles, and mm-hmm. then I'll open it in another browser and not have mm-hmm. an issue. Or if, like I with Firefox I have it where every time I close it it deletes all the cookies in history. Gotcha. And I yeah. never really seem to hit the firewall. Yeah. So it may yeah. be something like that. Yeah. But uh and I it's about time I should reach back out to Margaret Roche to see if she'd come on. I know last time I reached out she had a lot of things going on and said she couldn't do it right away. I think she said she was something about like a TV show. Oh. So maybe there's a TV show in the works, but okay. um I should reach out again and see if uh if she's interested. Um we've grown quite a bit so it's a little more alluring I think. But And uh, and her articles, I mean she she doesn't strictly write about native plants. Oh, she no. writes about gardening in general, but she's been emphasizing like over the course mm-hmm. of the last year more on native plant articles. Yeah. So the title of this article was Why Trillium Have Become the Poster Child for Endangered Native Plants. And uh, I mentioned it was published in the New York Times on uh, May 25th of 2022. And uh, I'll read a little bit of what she wrote and uh, and then I'll kind of give some of my feedback. And 
um, starting off with her, that good things come in threes with a lesson I learned in stages. It began years ago when I bought my house in the Hudson Valley and noticed three tiny plants growing underneath the edge of the front porch. I did not know it then, but they were trilliums. I lifted the anonymous creatures out with a trowel and moved them to a bed I was making just in case they were something. Most of the trillium learning I have accumulated along the way has felt tinged with serendipity or a kind of magic like the first, like that first time, but not the latest installment from a report published in April that analyzed the risk factors of two North American trillium in the wild. The report revealed that 32% of our native trillium species or varieties are threatened with extinction thanks to human development, predation by white-tailed deer and feral hogs, competition from invasive plants, and more. The plight of any native species is cause for, uh, cause for concern, but with trilliums, there's another layer, almost an emotional factor. Their distinct early flowers charm us, making us them making them poster child for other species in trouble, ambassadors for, uh, for an interest in growing and conserving natives. Botanists often refer to them as charismatic flora. Trilliums speak to people. Um, a quote, in any organism that can galvanize the public, we need more of those, said Wesley Knapp, chief botanist for NatureServe in Arlington, Virginia, one of the three conservation nonprofits behind the conservation stat- uh, status of Trillium in North America. The 86-page report, we don't have many, um, which is the 86-page report, we don't have many communication tools like that. So um, the status of Trilliums in the wild have, was assessed in partnership with the New, uh, New Mexico Biopark Society and Mount Cuba Center, the Native Plant Garden Research Facility in Delaware, uh, the study's genesis, the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Medicinal Group, has funding to evaluate the state of trilliums, a genus used in traditional medicine. They approached the Biopark Society, which reached out to Mount Cuba, which then in turn reached out to NatureServe, whose database populated by member programs across the United States and Canada is a tool frequently used to assess the status of plants. So I'm going to skip ahead here because okay. in this part um, of the actual article, not what I'm reading, it goes in a lot of depth of the science behind trilliums, different uh, different types of trilliums and yeah. all the different species. And uh, there's a lot of really fascinating stuff. I encourage you to go and look that up. But uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to touch on it here <laughs> because <laughs> I think it, it didn't um, – it doesn't go to towards my point. It was really, really fascinating and interesting, good good in the article. But, uh, but I don't want to bore people to death. Yeah. So um, – the threats of trillium outlined in the report by Clayton Meredith, New Mexico Biopark Society Species Survival Officer for Plants. What a title that is. That's wow. a good one. Yeah. Um, include human development, uh, but predation by white-tailed deer and habitat damage by feral hogs threaten more types of tr- trillium than anything else. As tough as trillium's undergro- uh, underground rhizomes are, that toughness goes only as far in the face of repeated browsing by white-tailed deer. When the blooms are removed, it means no seed will be set. The trillium reproduction cycle for seed or to flowering plant takes four to seven years. A remarkably, remarkably long time for herbaceous plants, Mr. Knapp said. So a lost year is very, very costly. Uh, rooting by feral hogs can deserve destroy not just the plants they upend, but also the habitat. Uh, the animals, a hybrid of Russian boars introduced to the south a century ago for hunting and domestic hogs, escape from farms, are gradually expanding their range. Mr. Meredith writes, moving northward and westward. And then there are uh, the competing plant species, those he cited um, as most likely to continue displacing trillium, are Chinese privet, bush honeysuckle, and garlic mustard. Each of the forms, uh, each of these forms, defense or dense stands which impede successional stages and directly impact herbaceous understory species. The likes of burning bush, English ivy, and Japanese stiltgrass are on the list too. In the northwest, Himalayan blackberry is the primary invasive plant culprit, but the increasingly common wildflowers that are caused by climate change are pressuring trillium populations as well. 
Uh, the plight of Trillium makes Mr. Knapp reflect on another group of charismatic plants, native orchids. When I was getting started, I remember seeing some wild orchids, a transformative moment for any young botanist, he said. But by then, the orchids were far less common than what they had been a mere generation before. Maybe I wasn't interested in them as much because I wasn't seeing hundreds of the site as I might have 20 years earlier, he said. And now I keep thinking, will the next generation of botanists not be enamored with Trillium because they m- never see masses of them? And uh, and that's where I want to wrap up with the article because that kicked me back to another time when I was in college where we were in a, like a field study and it was early spring and there's just masses of trilliums uh, you know, on the floor. And it was really, it was just seeing them in that mass was really, really cool. And even the professor then was talking about how these were starting to become more and more threatened, especially that was an area with high white-tailed deer predation or uh, predation on these kind of plants. Um, so it just goes to show like that's, when a lot yeah. of people think of rare plants, this is the plant they think of. It's the one I think of first, even though there are, are thousands of, of rare native plants. Um, but it seems like we're just making this more rare yeah. as the article it, lists. It, it really made me appreciate seeing Trillium in bloom at Bowman's Hill Wallflower mm-hmm. Preserve because they do have it fenced off, so they don't have that deer predation. Um, and it just makes you, like, seeing it the way it should be, you're like, wow, look at what we're missing. You know, like, when I left for work yesterday mm-hmm. coming in, and my neighbor across the street, there was a deer eating out of the bird feeder on the <laughs> on the front lawn, like literally like chasing the squirrels yeah. away and eat <laughs> like it wasn't even birds it was it was the deer, you know, so you understand that predation and it's you, you keep because you don't see it often. when was the last time you came across a wild stand of trillium? Oh, like, it's uh, been a decade. Yeah, yeah. It's so, a, but it's, I, not that I was going out and looking for. I mean, we don't have them. It's not in our area. Yeah, it's, it's not, not really like native, a, to our area. native to our area. So. But it's, did you know feral hogs was an issue? Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Not not in New Jersey, yeah. but in other parts, even in Pennsylvania. Um, and this is, I don't want to get too far off topic here, but there's a, some talk in New Jersey about because we a lot, as much of the the East, Mid Atlantic, and Northeast have like major deer. Uh, over population issues, um, there the topic of commercial harvest of white-tailed deer has been kicked around a lot recently, and um, my thoughts on it are: there's commercial har- harvest of feral hogs in some areas, yeah. and even even if you aren't actually able to eat them, you have to donate them. You yeah. can't get a dollar value for that. There's still a dollar value to having the hog because. Well, there's places that advertise hog hunts and oh you're helping the environment but as soon as the ho- they don't want the hogs really gone because as soon as they're gone they can't they their business model is also gone that's very true so once we assign value to these animals like i'm thinking about white tail you assign yeah. a value to it now someone's livelihood depends on it yeah um and they're yes they're they're helping to remove them but do they really want the longer they're there the more they're cashing out of it too yeah so um, that's my only concern with it. And I actually brought this up to another podcast who talks about this, and they were talking about uh, doing something like this out west and how it's worked in other countries. And um, I had a nice little discourse with them about how how that could work. But not to get too far off topic, but that's just a white-tailed deer. The other thing I, that's off topic, well, somewhat on topic, is with feral hogs is I, th- I heard somewhere that every pig in the outside of Africa but okay. in the rest of the world yeah. is really the same species. Really? Even though, like, you, the pigs that you have and in, in, like, at the farm are yeah. the same as feral hogs and 
But like yeah. Africa, I think, is the only continent that has different. multiple species of. of and I I know this is a silly question. Boars and hogs are different. Same. There are the same. Yeah. Okay. All I, right. Yeah, I think a boar is just uh, technically a, a male, a male hog. hog. Okay. All right. That's what I thought, um, but I wasn't sure. I'm like, I'm going to ask this just in case. Yeah, but it's they bring up a great point. I mean, it's about having that that plant that's charismatic. Um, and I've complained in the past about you have charismatic megafauna, you have your yeah. uh, elephants and giraffes and stuff, yeah. and that's what people care about. They don't care about the the possums that are in their backyard right here, or they don't care about the things that are equally as deserving of their their um, their imagination right in their backyard. Uh, because they have the charismatic stuff that's yeah. that's um, across the ocean, but it's important to have that because, like, there's been probably billions of dollars raised for for uh, preser- preser- uh, preserving giraffes and elephants. You need something that's going to capture that here, like um, the monarch butterfly has. Yeah. Uh, we, that's become really charismatic, and and that's fine. Like I like I just saw an article. I didn't know what. You had mm-hmm. chosen, but did you see the article online about Lady Slipper where they were kind of explaining no, no, like you can't really transplant them because mm-hmm. they have a symbiotic fungal relationship, mm-hmm. but it takes 14 years to maybe get a bloom. And if you take the bloom off, you've completely missed that seed mm-hmm. cycle for it to regenerate. So like it's important. It was explaining not to pick Lady Slipper flowers yeah. because you're you're hurting the life cycle of the plant. Mm-hmm. So it's – I'm I'm all for whatever it takes to be a poster child for that. If it's Trillium or Lady Slipper or something like that, mm-hmm. I'm okay with it as long as it brings attention. Yeah, it brings awareness in other ways. Yeah, exactly. And the only other thing I point about Trillium, it was just a funny, funny interaction that I I had. I was at a presentation years ago in uh, Washington D.C. I think I've told you. Yeah, this I before. remember this. And the the person went on and on about the virtues of Trillium, which is, I agree. I with. agree. Yeah. I don't know why they're. They're not producing this in the nursery trade and then continue to just like go on and on and say, it's, it's such an amazing plant because it takes seven years to, to grow from seed and all this. I'm like, well, you kind of answered the question why they don't produce in the nursery trade yeah. because there's so, unless the value of it is, is like the actual dollar value is so significant to make up for the seven years of time. Um, there's, I mentioned milkweed, you could flip. Like yeah. what two or three cycles of milkweed a year in that same space, yeah. and then multiply that by seven years. Is the one tray of trillium going to be as valuable as the, all the milkweed would be? Not that it's mm-hmm. not without valor to yeah. to get that plant out in the trade, but it's yeah. partly I think it's it's more rare because of the conditions that it needs and yeah. everything that it yeah. takes to get that plant. Like it's it's I I don't know for yeah. the, for even though you don't want it to go away, it's not a plant that's meant to be everywhere. Yeah, either so it's I I don't know. But two great articles. Mm-hmm. Make sure you vote. I'm not going to play the the. I, I haven't figured out a good segue. Oh, okay. To, to play the the, the <laughs> I outro. Got, I got in your head. You're in my head. Yeah. You're in my head. But two great articles. We'll post it on Facebook. Um, and make sure you vote. So, what do you think, listener shoutouts? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Listener, listener, shout out, shout out, shout out. So i I would like to give a big thank you to Joe Stormer for making me laugh. You with mean the Ambassador Joe Stormer? Ambas- yeah. Yes, That's- Ambassador <laughs> Joe Stormer for for uh, for for uh, his photo of Tom in China when Tom uh, put out there. I did I did do a Google search, like, but it's mm-hmm. funny every time every search I tried, it yeah. kept bringing the tallest man in China. 
Yeah, which is not me. Yeah, I am no. significantly shorter than Yao Ming. Yeah, um, and well, I don't even know if he's the tallest man. In China. No, it wasn't. It was another man who I, I can't remember the height, but it kept bringing that up. So, like, I tried to like find it, but Joe's Photoshop was was <laughs> was hysterical. Well, I don't know if it was exactly there, but we did actually uh, walk when on that trip. We walked the Great Wall of China. I, the picture is me in my like podcasting outfit yeah. with the headphones peeking, on, peeking up peeking from, from behind the like, Great Wall of China. And uh, we—I don't know if it was exactly there, but it looks similar to the it, like I don't even know thousands of steps that we climbed uh, to get to this like guard tower. And we all—we finally got to the guard tower, and I'm not in the best shape. Even then, I wasn't—I'm in a lot. I was in a lot better shape than I am now. You were playing but, um, college sports at that, but point. I was not in great shape. And we get to the guard tower, and it's like, oh, <laughs> there's like. 20 steps to get up to the top of the guard tower. You're just on the landing, and I'm like, I don't think I can do <laughs> It was hard going down because your legs were just like jelly. Oh, I can imagine. But uh, Are the steps shorter? Like, is it like you know how some steps are, are hard to ambulate because they're like. I wouldn't say overall. Overall, they were shorter. Yeah. Okay. But it wasn't so much that they were shorter. It was that they were just all around um, not the same size. Oh, okay. So they were all like each step was a different like height you'd have steps that were like maybe height you're going up like or, two or three inches and then you have others that were 12 inches and gotcha. they were yeah then i have big feet so it's hard for me to actually get my foot on every step it was it was a challenge yeah. it was definitely yeah, it was a big challenge but um, awesome but yeah, I, I also that was, that, was pretty that was pretty funny and i also want to uh shout out to ellie terrace who is one of our customers in connecticut and uh during our email correspondence just kind of threw in there that she's a big fan of the podcast so i just wanted to say thank you for that and uh, we appreciate you listening. Who do you have this week? And then we had a five-star review that wrote in, and it was uh, New Jersey and Vax. And she – or I always say well, she. It could be – I don't know who. I don't know is, either. But, um, wrote, Fran and Tom present a lot of great information about native plants, and I learn a lot by listening. They also have excellent guests. The tone, of, the tone is conversational, and I have fun listening. And that's what we want to do is make it a big conversation that's, and uh, want people to have a little bit of fun by listening. And, and we, we don't mind getting technical, but we want to make it – enjoyable and engageable for for everybody everybody hey i was thinking i didn't run this by you ahead of time but i was thinking i know it was such a such a success with our competition to give away the yeti Mm -hmm. i was wondering do you want to run another contest i was thinking we we sell our plugs in flats of 50 Mm -hmm. which but it's a minimum of 50 yeah i was thinking of a mixed flat of 50 different herbaceous species oh yeah and so, I mean, it's like a native garden ready to go. Mm-hmm. I'll personally select the 50 pieces based mm-hmm. on where you win, where you're at to see, make yeah. sure we could try to get plants that are also yep. native. It's not going to be, the, it may not be the right ecotype if you're in, we have to yep. limit it obviously to North America or to, to the United States, the continental mm-hmm. United States. Um, but I was, th- what do you think of that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good idea. All right. So five-star review and what's the time frame? Uh, let's do two months. From now. Two months. All right. So, uh, so we're going to do mid August. Yeah. We're going to like roughly mid August. Yeah. We're going to pick some. So get your five. If, if you already have a five star review in, you're already in the mix. Mm-hmm. If you want a chance to win, it's probably retail value somewhere over 200, $250. Uh, uh, retail value for a flat is at least a hundred with shipping. Oh, uh, with, with shipping, with, yeah, it's yeah. probably close to two hundred. Two hundred dollars yeah. retail value. So, uh, it would be a great opportunity for you to get some great native plants mm-hmm. uh, in, in your on your property. Uh, Fifty different native plants yeah. would be huge. Yeah. So, uh, get your five star review and now. Yeah. So, no, I, I like that idea. All right. Awesome. So. Awesome. I didn't know how you, how you were gonna 
think about that. Yeah. But glad you liked it. That was positive. I was expecting a complaint. No, I have we no complaints. Hit that I have, in a long time. Uh, no, no, I have no complaints. <laughs> That's because I sneak a, them in. We did have a question. We do. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. And I want to have them answered immediately. It's a simple question. Um, no, I didn't hear you. What was your question? So this was a question that was originally posted on our Facebook group, and I didn't really chime in because I didn't really have a great answer, um, yeah. I think. Um, so um, this person called in. Let's, let's just play it, and we'll, mm-hmm. go, we'll go from there. Oh, I guess I need to actually turn the uh, volume up on the, <laughs> the phone. Hey, Fran and Tom. It's Tim calling. Um, I put this post on um, – I, I posted this question on the Facebook group too, but um, I thought I'd uh, call in. That was suggested to me. Um, so here I am. So I'm in Hunterdon County, northern Hunterdon County, um, like in the Highlands. Um, this spring I planted a native bed in front of my home on the north side. <laughs> um, and I've got uh, the native bed. I, I picked up a bunch of plants at a plant cell, and I have, I think, four kinds of um, mint. Mountain mint, no, 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 never mind. Uh, so I have wild bergamot, eastern bee balm, and then three species of mountain mint. There's clustered mountain mint, Virginia, and narrow leaf. And then I was reading about them. I planted them uh, a, a little while back, and then this spring. And uh, then I read a, a thing online where it said that mints can hybridize, and I wasn't sure if that applied to native mints, although. It seems like anything in the mint family can kind of hybridize. And I was like, and then it said to plant them at least 20 feet away from each other. I was like, well, that's, that's done. That's not happening. <laughs> uh, they're all like, you know, within a foot or two of each other. Um, it's a small bed. The fo- I put photos on, or one photo on Facebook. Um, I was just, but it had me thinking, like, in general, um, you know, when we plant in our gardens, we're planting uh, maybe some native stuff that, normally wouldn't be found so close to each other. Um, and this hybridization can be an issue. Um, and maybe if it happens in nature, uh, maybe that it's not the same as like a cultivar where it's like being selected, you know, selective hybrid breeding. Um, anyway, I'm not sure that it's much of an issue, but I just thought I'd kind of ask whether – I should be concerned about that. Like, should I pull up any um, plants that look like they're coming up from seed in that bed or nearby? Um, you know, as opposed to, like, the ones that are coming off the runners or rhizomes from those plants. Um, anyway, that's my question. Love the podcast. I've been listening for maybe six months now, and um, I really enjoy it. I look forward to it um, every week. And I've also still have some episodes to check out in the backlog so it's great stuff and um, love your guests and keep up the great work thanks guys sorry for the long message tim thank you for for calling so i i don't you know i obviously this call actually just came in mm-hmm. so i i didn't do any research but i have a gut feeling yeah and so i i did a little bit just while we were listening there and i know the the like actual like the true mints yeah. can hybrid like with the mentha yeah. they can hybridize but i wasn't sure about our native mints so i animal. just googled it and it says uh that uh this is from the arkansas native plant society which i think we have a couple members in our facebook group are actually so, members yeah. of this society too and uh it wrote 
that natural hybridization has been document, documented among, among native mints, though, so difficult to identify plants may occasionally be encountered. And that's talking about uh, identifying all the different mountain yeah. mints that there are. So I guess it is possible yeah, um, I, with native mints, and it makes sense because we've seen it in other species. Yeah, I, I mean my gut feeling is we see it just in the nursery with lobelia. Uh, in the wild in Lobelia, it happens with blueberries. Like how many, yeah. how many different uh, uh, cross-pollinated blueberry stands are there? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you see them in the wild, you know, obviously it's a big industry as well, but we see in the wild uh, differences. So it, it's something that happens naturally, you know, without researching or at mm-hmm. the risk of being wrong. You know, I would think if it's something that happens naturally, it's naturally occurring. I don't see it really being an issue or much of a concern. Mm-hmm. You know, if it happens, it happens. That's where a lot of these selections come from. You know, it's uh, you see them in the wild; like they they cross pollinate it, and boom, you have a new selection. So it's um, I don't think it's going your... to be like everything is now. Oh yeah, it, it, yeah. you're going to have some. Yeah, and it's uh, I would even say that it's probably still going to be pretty rare. Yeah, that you'd you'd actually notice it in your most of the stuff is still going to come up true. Uh, that that reseeds and every once in a while you might have something that's like a little bit different and and that's where well, maybe you found a cool plant yeah. that you can you can call in a botanist and yeah. they can discover it for you yeah. but um yeah it's not a lot, some like Fran mentioned lobelia and we've seen it uh, another one that we've seen hybridizing is uh, aquilegia yeah where we'll uh, we've collected seed off of known aquilegia canadensis and then when you go and plant it. They're all different colors because someone had some columbine in their now, yard and it cross pollinates. Now here's out. here's where it becomes an issue. As long as to me, if it's all native plants cross pollinating, okay. One of the issues in the native plant industry is that there's a hybridization between um, Alnus rugosa. Mm-hmm. Why why can't I think of what the common name is for that? Um, speckled oh. al- speckled alder uh, hybridizing with European alder in nature and getting it's it's very hard to produce speckled alder because mm-hmm. there's so much European alder now now colonizing mm-hmm. that you get this weird you know even though you collected the seed from a speckled alder you grow up and it has allness glutinosa uh, European alder traits so it's it's very difficult and it doesn't have it may happen you know three plants out of a thousand. But it happens. So mm-hmm. it, it's something to be cognizant of. You don't want it to cross-pollinate with ones outside. Um, but if it's one native cross-pollinating with another native, I think that's happens naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, could I be wrong? Abs- absolutely. I'm just speaking from the hip right now. But yeah. that's just my gut feeling on it. But yeah. So, but great question. So, thank you for thank you for calling in. Hopefully, if other people are listening to this and they want to post to your your initial question on the mm-hmm. Facebook page, we would love that. Yeah, so great. Did you did you finally read a book this I've week? I finished. I actually finished two books. Oh, one, one was an audio book and one was a paper book. Oh, grow me a book. I like books. All right. So, which one do you want to talk? about? I'm going to do since our our topic, our discussion topic today is what everyone chimed in on on Facebook and Instagram about getting their kids in the outdoors. I just finished a book called Outdoor Kids in an Inside World. 
uh, by Stephen Ranella, who's the host of the Mediator podcast and um, the Mediator TV series, and uh, which is a, a hunting and outdoor show. But he goes into a lot of different ways to get your kids engaged in the outdoors. Okay, and, awesome. Um, it was a really great book. The other book I, I had an audio was uh, um, Muir's, uh, what's it, Voyages in Alaska? Oh, okay. Or Journeys yeah. in Alaska. So I'll save that one for next time. Awesome. But uh, another really interesting, just the writing and prose in that book was was fascinating. So, um, But going back to Outdoor Kids and the Inside World, it was really broken down into seven sections and uh, or seven chapters. It's a fairly short book. I think it's maybe a hundred and less than, a little less than 200 pages. And... Um, and it slowly, it does things slowly, like more engaged in nature. And like a, each step is a little bit harder, I guess is yeah. the way to put it. And uh, it starts out, uh, the, the concepts are basically thinking native, camping, foraging, gardening, fishing, hunting, and then home. Um, and I'll chime in a little bit on them. What I mentioned in the last episode and why everyone was commenting and, and even in the question got which direction their, their house faces is that was one of the questions he had for thinking native. Think about what's just right outside your door and where you live. What is the, what's going on in your hometown habitat is the term he uses. And um, I took out some of the other questions. I'm not going to read them all because you got to read the book if you want to get all, right. all the stuff. I don't want to be accused of, of stealing from someone else's work. But um but some of my favorite questions were, uh, what's the elevation of your hometown habitat? And, Fran, do you know what the elevation? I don't know what the elevation where you live is. Do you know the elevation of our office? I don't. It's about 70 feet over sea level. Okay. And I'm sure we have people, maybe that's what they can comment when they vote this week is their elevation over sea level. And right. uh, and if uh, right. if I- you have the highest elevation... We'll uh we'll give you a star, Ooh. a gold star. <laughs> I, I I do not know what well, the elevation is of my hometown. Yeah, and uh, that's a pretty easy one to answer. You just Google it, and it, it tells you. But um, yeah, I want to say we're like seventy-two feet above sea level here uh, in Columbus, New Jersey. So, um, just an interesting thing, thing to know, and something that how like I guess how far down are you? Would you have to go to the ocean, or uh, in some places, how far up would you need to go? So I'm 79 feet. Yeah, so about where I live. Yeah. So um, another really good one that I encourage, even if you're not a child, to think of is if a drop of rain was to fall on the roof above your head right now, what path would it take, and and realistically, how many steps would it take before it got to the ocean? Ooh. And uh, yeah, here it's. It fell here. It's going to go in our gutter. It's going to end up eventually making its way through a series of ditches to to Crafts Creek. Um, Crafts Creek eventually will run into the Delaware River, Delaware River to Delaware Bay, and then Atlantic Ocean from there. Wouldn't go so, down to an aquifer. Probably not. Not to get the ocean. Go to oh aqu- yeah, that's true. Yeah, if it goes and, down the aquifer, it's and changing. go to an aquifer yeah. is going to take like hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. So, yeah, that's true. Um, I don't know how long it would take to get there though. I don't know, but I bet it's a long time. Yeah. Um, uh, here was another, uh, good one was, um, what's your dominant wind direction? That's one I, I pay attention to all the time just because, uh, there's practical reasons, <laughs> reasons to know what wind direction is. Uh, another fun one is what is the earliest human inha- inhabitation, inhabitation of your town? Ooh. And then what tribes like native American tribes lived here. And then what around when was it colonized? And, uh, and then from there, you can ask yourself, why did Europeans actually come to your area? Or why? Or I guess it doesn't always have to be Europeans, but why were the first settlers, why did they come to the area? Because here it was 
probably good farm ground and and I guess eventually oh well, some of it was religious persecution. We're in a very Quaker area. Um, they're fleeing religious persecution and uh, or historically Quaker area. And um, well, and here, then here we're real yeah. close to the Delaware River. Like you're oh, close yeah. to yeah. like good waterways. There's a, probably a lot. But you go out west, and now gold is an option, and and just exploring is an option. So. Um, or just space or, ac- or access to land, mm-hmm. I guess, yep. becomes an option. Yep. What was it? Wasn't it where if you moved – we had used with, to have the oh, – You're called? talking about with Johnny Appleseed. Like there was yeah, an incentive yeah. oh, to go that – Johnny could, Appleseed, it was uh, like they they wanted to – this is after the Louisiana Purchase, I think. They wanted to settle more areas of the country. So uh, – and this is what John, why Johnny Appleseed became – famous and I guess somewhat rich at one point in his life was uh, he would go to the areas he thought were going to be the next like booming areas of the country where they were trying to get settlers because they would kind of do land or they would do land grants where, okay, hey, if you move here, we will give you 40 acres or or a hundred acre parcel for you to start to farm. Um, But we, they didn't, they wanted to discourage people from moving there and then just, jumping around the country, getting 100 acres everywhere they went, and then now they owned all this land. So they said, but when you move there, you have to plant an apple orchard, and you had to have like 100 apple seeds, so or 100 apple trees. So Johnny Appleseed would go to these areas before he went and settled in the Ohio Valley, and I think in Indiana, someplace in Pennsylvania, um, originally from Massachusetts, and just kind of went across the country. And he'd set up apple nurseries where he would grow apple trees, and apple trees grow best if you do it from... Uh, a, a graft, yes. but it's a really hard to move grafts all around the country, and that's why he used seeds because it didn't necessarily. They just needed the trees. They didn't need to necessarily have good apples for making cider. They didn't eat the apples as much as they made yeah. cider out of them. Um, so that was his whole business model: was Hey, I think they're going to settle in the Ohio River Valley. I'm going to move there, set up this nursery with all my apple seeds. I'm going to plant them all. And I'm going to have apple trees, and then when all the people come. Well, they need a hundred apple trees to, to literally set down roots, um, so they don't move to another area. So, and then they're going to have to come to me. Nice. My dad had a similar yeah. motive with the native yeah. plants. Like, well, if they legally have to buy native plants, and no one's growing native plants, then and I start doing it, then they kind of legally have to buy them from me. That was I like yeah. to make that joke. Yeah, but uh, no, yeah, but so that was the whole yeah. concept behind that. Yeah. Was, but those are all fantastic questions. Yeah, and that's just oh, one yeah. chapter. Yeah, that's just the first, and that's not even. That's just part of the first chapter. Okay. But um, it really just says learn about your local area first. You don't need to plan anything. You don't need to – you just need to go outside. I guess realistically you don't even need to go outside to answer these questions. But if you want to just identify the birds in your area or know what fish live in the stream by your house or, or uh, what kind of insects are around. Take a walk yeah. around your house and see how long it takes you to find some ins- – like 10 insects and identify yeah. them. It's- this actually ties in – I'm going to bring this up just because I, I, I think it ties in. So our, our guest next week is is Perry from uh, the Headwaters podcast, which is mm-hmm. done by uh, Glacier National Park. <clears throat> and she was saying one of her favorite activities to do with children is um, to – explain the food web is they have the, the kids stand in a circle and they give each of them an index card and like the the um uh example that she gave because season two of headwaters that perry's on it has to do with the the white barked pine 
So like someone may have white bark pine. Someone may have – I think it's Casper's Nutcracker, which mm-hmm. is the, the bird that opens up the seed and, and caches them in the ground mm-hmm. and, and all these things that tie together and they run yarn from the first kid mm-hmm. to the next kid. And as they go it, they go around the circle and create a yarn web and then they have the kids actually lean back yeah. to show that the web supports each other and mm-hmm. then they get the scissors out. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's like, all right, if you were to remove this interaction, what does it do to the the yeah. food web? And it's it just kind of like it's a real good learning moment where they kind of mm-hmm. make that connection because we're kind of disconnected from it, and yeah. it's a good way to. Oh, yeah. I just thought that kind of tied in a little. No, bit. No, yeah, it's a, a similar concept. Yeah. Um, so the ne- the next chapter was about camping, and basically he just says, "Hey, you need to get out there. There are a million reasons if you have young kids." You should stay home. Yeah, like they could get hurt. You're, they're going to bring them around the fire. They're, it's going to be wet. It's going to be muddy. They're going to be all kinds of scorpions. Who knows what? Yeah. There's a million reasons to keep them home. You just got to get out there and try it, yeah. and uh, and you'll learn. Uh, it's uh, my wife always says this that she got advice from someone how when you go on trips, especially with young kids, it's going to suck. It's yeah. not going to be a lot of fun. You're running around like crazy. Some so-and-so doesn't want to eat their dinner, and this one doesn't want to go to this place, and it's just arguing all the time. But it's not about your enjoyment at that moment. It's about the memories you're making along the way. And it, she, she, uh, she said, stop considering the vacations and start considering the memory-making trips, and then you'll have a lot more fun. I was going to say, if if you've never been in a tent with a playpen, yeah. And then yeah. have it rain like three inches over yeah. the weekend. You you haven't <laughs> you mm-hmm. haven't camped because you know even though at the time it was stressful, I'll never forget it. Yeah, you know, and we we you know it's one of those trips that's remembered. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So it's uh, but he, the big thing was just getting out there, embracing that moments are going to suck, and people are going to be wet, and they're going to be muddy, and they're going to cry. Make sure, you, like in today day, today's day and age, everyone has their, their iPad or Kindle or something like that to bring along. Bring it along. Like limit it, but bring it along because there's going to be moments when you need it. Um, yeah. But And you just got to gotta be a champion and get through it. And uh, But it's going to build memories and just kind of be the, the kindling of that burning fire of connection to nature later. Um the next step was foraging, which I would, when I'm said, it was kind of goes in order of what's yeah. hardest to easy or, or easiest to I hardest. I think that I'm would like, be oh, harder. I, I think that would be further down the list, but it really isn't because you don't need to. All you need to do is go outside and know a little bit about your plants and fungus and that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, and this is something you can kind of do anywhere. There's a like if you live in New York City, there's stuff that's growing in the sidewalk now. Personally, I don't know if I would eat because you don't know who's yeah. been walking there yeah. or, or who's been doing their business around uh-huh. there at, at night, um, how many dogs are walking by, that kind of stuff. But there's dandelions that grow on the sidewalk in, in New York City, and there's stuff in Central Park and in and, and all the different parks. So um, there's mushrooms that are going to grow up in wherever you live. Yeah. So it's just you're able to go outside and actually forage no matter what your 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 – uh, habitat looks like in a way, um, but you don't actually need to plant anything to do that step. So it's just learning some of the the things that are around you, learning what's edible, what's not. That's a great step to get people or get kids engaged because food is a major driver for children. Yes. <laughs> and that's where, oh, yeah, uh, totally. That's where it really kicked in where that was a big part of this book is eating what you're 
eating is a great connection to nature. And um, so the next step was uh, was gardening. And like I said, that's another step. You need to have the ground to do it. You need to have the the, uh, the plants to actually plant. Yeah. So whether you're doing it from seed or buying them. Um, so there's another barrier to entry there. And then uh, and you need to have a lot of patience to do it. And his biggest uh, his biggest thing there was plant what they're going to want to eat because then they're going to be engaged with it. If they if they really like carrots, plant a bunch of carrots. Let them pull out carrots whenever they're like show them how to do it, and then say, "Hey, when you want a, a snack, go over and pull out a carrot, or go eat some green beans off or, or string, uh, what's it, sugar snap peas, right off the vine, and uh, or." Grab a juicy tomato. I remember doing that as a kid, like a tomato right off the mm-hmm. plant. That's was, I just awesome. eat it like an apple. Yeah. It was awesome, and um, and that's I love tomatoes to this day, and I still think of those memories fondly, even though that's not necessarily nature. But it's getting outside yeah. and and engaging in. I could be inside watching TV or, or yeah. playing a Game Boy or something else, but instead I'm not only eating that tomato, but then thinking more about the plant and what else I can do to get more tomatoes and and grow a better plant and all that. So. Um, the next one, he started getting to fishing and, uh, and that was something that was really interesting to me and brought back was we always, a lot of our vacations as kids revolved around fishing trips. Yeah. Wherever we went, we went to fish. I remember there was one time we went to, my dad had a meeting in Orlando area and we, the whole family went down and he went to the meeting for a couple of days. And then yeah, I think the original plan was to go to Disney world, but for some reason we didn't go to Disney world. And uh, we went fishing on Lake Okeechobee instead, which I don't think is even really that close to Orlando, but it was close enough that yeah. we went there. And um, and we still joke around and say that was the best trip to Disney week. <laughs> so we, went, we went fishing on, on a lake instead of going to Disney World. But um, one of the things that I always got brought back to is when we would catch fish, because we, we did a lot of catch and release, but we ate a lot of the fish we caught too, was it was always – interesting to do like a little dissection, see what they had eaten and whether it was crayfish or minnows. And you always find something really unique in there. Yeah. And, um, and sometimes it was kind of like half dismembered cause it's been in there yeah. in the stomach acid for a while. Sometimes it's really fresh. There was an instance I remember where, uh, cause I even do this as an adult now and just see what they've been eating. And there was an instance where I caught a striped bass and I cut it open and there was actually a, uh, a bunker or a Manhattan okay. that was still, like wriggling that was wow. in its, it had literally ate it just before it ate the one I had wow. on the hook. And, um, but yeah, you kind of do those dissections. Now again, it's another, there's another barrier to entry. You need to have the equipment you need to. And, um, and it's not for, not everyone wants to do that, but, uh, but that's another way to get kids out there and really engage them more so than just holding a pole and with, with some worms and catching fish, you're, you're engaging with the fish and learning about the species and, and um, going home and looking it up online and making it more interactive than than or a, a deeper interaction than just the catching I'm, the fish. I'm actually thinking about. Do you know the story about the snow goose with my son no. and your dad? No, I don't All think right. I do. All right. <laughs> well, there's, uh, you know, because I see that the next chapter is hunting, mm-hmm. and my youngest had like a morbid curiosity with anatomy as a kid mm-hmm. and he had asked I was sharing the story that he had asked that when our dog died if we could cut his head open so we could see what was inside of his mm-hmm. head so your dad hunted a snow goose 
and mm. we brought Cole in, and they completely dissected the goose so yeah. that he could see all the parts and kind of what goes mm-hmm. on. And it's it was a very healthy way for him to experience yeah. that curiosity, and he loved every – like mm-hmm. he had wanted to hunt ever since then. Yeah. You know, yep. he, he's never become one, but he, he mm-hmm. wanted one. But, um, you know, it was – and that's a frightening thing to hear your kid say oh, too. Yeah. You know, it was like yeah. – I'm trying to remember how old he was at the time, maybe like six or seven. It's like, oh, you don't do that with your, your pet. You know, yeah. like that's not something <laughs> yeah. that we're going to do. But fortunately, your dad thought of a, a way. Mm-hmm. You know, I could tell he knew it was bothering me and it kind of sat with him for a little bit. And that was the solution for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and his mother is a nurse and was able mm-hmm. to like help him with the anatomy of it. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, a bird had to, to die for yeah. that, you know, but it was, um, I don't know. Yeah. I just thought well, I'd in a lot of story. these cases, you're, you're consuming the the animal too, yeah. like especially with a fish. It's, yeah. that's just a, an added aspect of it. Yeah. And f- yeah, seeing the anatomy aspect of it is actually an interesting point too. Yeah, is looking at the anatomy of these different animals and saying, "Hey, this is like a lot of deep sea fish have swim bladders, yeah. which we don't have swim bladders, so that's something different they have. But yeah. we all we both have hearts, we both have yeah. like different things, so you can kind of line up there. I, I mean, Cole still talks about. Like holding the heart in his hand. Yeah. You know, yeah. and like he remembers that, mm-hmm. like, and, and what he learned from that. Yeah. But. And then, um, then, like I said, Stephen Rennell is a, a hunting, um, well, he has his own hunting show. So obviously it ends with hunting because that is the one that needs not only has the largest barriers to entry for yeah. equipment wise and, and, uh, land wise, but also, um, requires the most, uh, not belief, but like the biggest leap into. Yeah, it's not something that is easy to get into unless you know someone, and you really have to want to do it. It's a oh, it's yeah. a relationship where it's like I, I'm taking a life for yeah. for my own nourishment, and um, so it's uh yeah, it's not something. It's definitely not something for everyone. And if you yeah. aren't interested in that, that's not something you should do just because yeah. it says. It, you want to try it in a book, and even just getting um, a, a license isn't yeah. like just going in and applying. It's, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You have to take all kinds of tests to make sure. Um, well, one, you have to go and take hunting tests that kind of teach you the ethics yeah. behind a lot yeah. of the stuff, and and when you should shoot versus when you shouldn't shoot, and then uh, and you can do it at a fairly young age. You can do yeah. it in New Jersey. It's ten. In other states, yeah. it's a little younger. Others, some others, is a little older. But in that like eight to twelve range is typically where most states will license a hunter. But you have to be with an adult for the first couple of years until you're yeah. probably like fourteen to yeah. sixteen age. And um, but you have to do like proficiency tests. So whether it's with a, a gun or a bow or, or whatever you're using, you need to actually show that you're proficient not only in like your in accuracy. But also in handling of because it's a weapon at the end of the day it's it's something that could have yeah. lethal consequences okay. not just for game but for other things too so they want to make sure you're proficient in that kind of stuff yeah. um, and they'll they fail a lot of people a lot of young kids go home crying from those classes because they aren't ready they haven't had the right training yeah. yet um, so that was the the next step was hunting. Okay. Right. And uh, the last one was home, and uh, if I'm being completely honest, I said I finished the book. I have about 20 pages left, and that's right. the chapter that's fine. I have right. left. So. Finish that one next yeah. week. I'm just looking at time. We yeah. should probably yep. move it along. Um, so topic, speaking of outdoors and kids outdoors, um, when we did Children with Nature, we had asked everyone 
what we we shared some of the ways yeah. we've gotten our children involved with outdoors. These are some great advice uh, from uh, outdoor kids in an inside world. Mm-hmm. But we asked our listeners, what are some of the ways? And we got some great feedback. And and thanks oh, yeah. to um, Alyssa for, yeah. for for posting it. And uh, Tom picked out some of his favorite. Uh, that we thought oh, this share. is just, uh, I don't want to say favorite, all but of them, some but of the, there's a lot. There yeah, was there was a lot. a lot in there. This was I tried to at least give each person one, and um, and uh, the first one that came in was actually on our Instagram page where I asked this first, and that was uh, Flutter by Meadows, um, and they wrote lead by example. Don't just say go out and play. Go on a hike. Go for a walk. Walk the kids around the yard, and that was a recurring topic through a lot of the the other uh, things that we had, like um, like Emily Shelby. Uh, had wrote that she doesn't have kids of her own, but growing up in Maryland, uh, her mom would always just sit in the kitchen and watch the birds and critters play in the backyard and then bring out the ID book and say, okay, this is, there's a bird and it's got a, a red head and, and it's black with, with a white chest. And then you look through the book and figure out what it is. Now you can use the Merlin bird ID app from, from yeah. Cornell, but um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways, but that's an, another thing they talk about in the, the, book i just referenced um, as well no that's awesome uh Alyssa joy lewis actually chimed in as well and uh she was saying she hadn't done this uh in a long time with her kids but when her oldest uh two were little she'd walk them around the yard and teach them what all the native plants were and then give them each a turn to tell uh what they remember which is great what you know mm-hmm. like that's you know that's one of the my fiance is a teacher and that's one of the ways she uses to engage kids yeah. and and have them remember like and recall yeah. um and then for every three to five plants they could uh correctly identify they'd earn a chocolate chip and then i awesome. i just saw she followed up um right after saying that she did it with them this past week and all right <laughs> did the quizzes again so oh that's awesome that's uh, awesome then uh angela boyer dara eighth i'm gonna guess uh, i'm sorry i'm Terrible at pronouncing your last name. Uh, wrote that her daughter's four and loves to take the binoculars or magnifying glass on hikes, and she gets to bring which is going to fit in her mini backpack and carry around with her water bottle. And um, another big thing she said, and this is another thing they talked about in the book, is make sure that the child has freedom to do some of their own exploring and uh, maybe let them lead the hike for a little bit. Say, hey, which way do you want to go? And um, now, obviously, you don't want to lead you down a no. too difficult path or dangerous path, but... Um, yeah, let them have some agency and uh, and point out the things that they want. It can't. It shouldn't always be the adult saying, "Hey, look at this," and or or oh, this really this insect's really cool. Have you checked out this leaf before? Let the the child kind of lead and ask, "Hey, what's this?" And yeah. or oh, look at this cool orange thing. What's that? Yeah, and um, that's a good way to that, build that engagement. That's great advice. Great advice. Uh, Cindy Wilson commented that her daughter's kindergarten class uh, just had a field trip to a local botanical garden. Uh, they had a five census garden and the chaperones were able to split up and take two kids each. Um, she had taken her daughter and another, uh, child, um, uh, and they explored the garden slowly, let them smell and taste the plants that were there for that purpose, explaining, uh, what they were used for. So, which is great. And I know, uh, we talked about Sourlands Conservancy has, uh, the foraging forest, the foraging forest, uh, where they go in and do lessons. And it's, it's a very similar thing. And I, I love that interactivity. Uh, interaction because mm-hmm. uh, you definitely remember that a little bit more. Yeah, definitely, and it's it's letting them in, experience it on their own. It's yeah. not just a, a told experience. Totally. Um, another person wrote in uh, Rita Tomasetti saying that they take their kids hiking, and um, the kids absolutely love nature and respect it. And then uh, then just making their kids go outside to play, making that an 
making that a part of their playtime instead of just saying, hey, let's watch TV or, or go to your playroom and play with toys inside. It's going outside as well. Totally. And uh, Gay Sweet Bitter uh, agreed on, on the hiking point as well um, and and suggested pointing out interesting things along the way depending on the season. If you can find a salamander, frag, uh, frog, or turtle, you get bonus points. Also, uh, like you were just saying, Tom, find out what interests them. Um, her hand, her uh, grandson helped uh, loved helping her plant, so mm-hmm. that was uh, one of the things that also helped uh, with the interaction. And the last one I, I put on here was from Sheena Wade, and she put a link in for uh, had some other stuff too, but she put in a link for a uh, thousand hours outside, which is a program that we're doing with our son, and he's just shy of two hundred hours right now. Wow. It's it's really kind of um, daunting when you're looking at this in the beginning, and it's January, and you're like. Man, we spent 17 hours outside. Well, he spent 17 hours outside over the course of a month. How the heck are we ever going to hit a yeah. thousand? And then it seems like once the weather warms up and you're out three, four plus hours yeah. a day, or you, we had one day where the only time he was inside from the time he woke up, he had made him breakfast. We sat on the porch. Uh, the only time he was inside was for his nap. From wow. and it's like, and you go to bed and you're like, man, he didn't watch any TV today. Or he like he was really into the the one bee that was flying yeah. around that one flower for like twenty minutes, and um, you just kind of I don't know it makes you feel really proud in those situations. Speaking of naps, I took a nap in a hammock on on Sunday. There you go. There you yeah. go. That was awesome. That counts, right? Apparently, no. I no. said because I was like, oh, he if we go camping, say we take a weekend camping trip, that knocks out like forty eight hours right there, right? And she said, no, sleeping doesn't count. Oh, which right. I think it should. Um, I- I think I, it ca- I think it should count more than than sitting on the porch, but yeah, I kind of agree with you on that. So, but those were thank you everyone for sharing. Those are some great ones, and I'm sure that conversation is going to keep going. So, if you have more, please add it. Mm-hmm. I love the interaction on that one and and all the great ideas. Yeah, and uh, I I want to thank Alyssa again for for taking the initiative in that, and hopefully we can mm-hmm. do that a little bit more in the future. So, I have a take it. I was I've been really struggling mm. with take it or leave it. And uh, I was thinking about non-native botanical gardens. Yeah, you know, and and it's there. A lot of times, they're they're places people pay to see, um, and they get a lot of their their gardening ideas and um, what they learn about plants mm-hmm. from there. And I was curious if it was a take it or leave it for you. I I would I would take it because I think a lot of the the non-native botanic gardens are adding native components. Like I'm thinking yeah. of Longwood Gardens, yeah. which is they added so many the native fabulous, meadow. Well, they have this probably the largest aspect of that entire that entire park now yeah. is, is their native meadow. And Mount Cuba yeah. has the uh, the natural lands. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think a lot of them are incorporating it more, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping over time that it it shifts even more yeah. and it becomes more and more native and and less and less non-native. It's just it, in the traditional sense with the traditional botanical gardens, mm. I can think of some where I don't, I don't want to say anything where it's really expertly pruned and gardened mm. and pretty, but also lifeless in, in a food web type of yeah. way. And um, I would like to see less and less of that. I know yeah. they exist. I just don't want to see new ones. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm hoping that we're kind of moving past that a little bit. So. I think I'm okay with it, knowing that the trend is that 
you, we talk about it all the time. I think the native plant awareness just keeps growing and growing, and people are a little bit more yeah. cognizant all the time. So, and then, well, then the the most like the newest botanic garden I can think of is the at least in our neck of the woods is the the was it the Delaware State Botanic Garden at Pepper Creek, yeah, which is in like kind of middle South Delaware on the coast, and um, and that was I, I'm pretty sure an all native botanic garden yeah. and was it pete oldoff designed I, that i'm pretty I sure think so. so yeah um, and that's greg tepper was there greg correct? tepper was yeah. there for a while uh, yeah, and, uh, and i'm trying to remember the guy who took over after him who also just left but uh but i'm so the newest one i can think of is is i don't want to say exclusively native but i'm pretty sure it's mostly yeah. native if not exclusively native so so yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to think you know it's and you're right it's so many of them are now incorporating uh a native plant aspect mm. which which i love to see which brings more education uh towards that and yeah. and i think because basically up up most parks for the most part are native plant botanical mm. gardens if yes. you think about it so um yeah i i was kind of thinking about it. i'm like i you're right i don't know if there's many new botanic gardens that are mm-hmm. are popping up that aren't yeah. they, they there's more of a history but you know I, I had mentioned, and one of our our first guests ever was Duke Farms, and mm-hmm. I had been there before it was a native plant, like when when um, Mrs. Duke was still alive, and they had the 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 uh, cons- conservatory, mm-hmm. which was formal boxwood hedges and things like mm-hmm. that, and that's all that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And, and look at how that's progressed, and that's really changed over mm-hmm. time. So, yeah. and now they're a leader in education and 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 all that. So. All right. I just thought it was interesting. I'm struggling, but I, that one popped up. I'm like, ah, oh, you know what? That's a good conversation. Yeah, I'll think, I think of a couple more when uh when they pop in my head, and I I I have a, an issue where if I don't write it down or I don't like make a note of it on my phone, I forget about it. It's and there was something happening. I was for follow up, and I'm like, right when I'm about to send this over to you to say, oh yeah, friend, we're ready to go. I'm like, I there's something I was supposed to add, but I don't remember what it was. And but, you know, and before we close out, I want to. I know we threw this out on the uh facebook group but we had asked a question about you know there's over 100 episodes over half of them have guests um we wanted to know tom and i would like to do a talk where we share with with homeowners practical advice from all these wonderful guests over time Mm -hmm. so we were curious from our listeners who have used some of this advice what are some of the more practical advice that you've given or gotten that you you still use or you've taken away. Um, I know a lot of our guests has preached patience, things like that, you know, mm-hmm. and and share with us which guest said it, um, because we think that would be a valuable resource to a lot of people that are starting out. Um, some great advice, and there's some some big names, and it shouldn't just be all advice from one person. Mm-hmm. You know, it should be there's some great minds uh, overall that we'd yeah, like what, to introduce. What are some of the moments to. in our history that stuck out to you, and maybe rerouted your journey with native plants or or pushed you a little bit further than you thought you'd go with native plants so but, that's the kind of yeah. the impactful stuff that we're looking for bonus, the things that changed you bonus points if it if it came from me or tom yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's okay if you yeah. do that it doesn't have to be a guest it can be us so but i think if you can help us with that i know i know someone had commented that there were multiple things tell us multiple things mm-hmm. that's that's fine you know we but we're interested we know what impacts us we want to know what's what has impacted yeah. you 
Yep. So, well, that's going to wrap us up. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to the buzz. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. Huge thanks to RJ Comer for our buzz theme music. Make sure you stream or buy RJ's music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume your music. Follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, thank you for the call on the question and comment line. The number there is 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. Uh, we'll play it on a future epi- episode of The Buzz and answer it to the best of our ability. Um, and if we can't, we'll we'll get someone that can. And uh, don't forget about the Facebook group. We've been talking about it nonstop since the beginning of this episode. So thank you to everyone for being a member of that. Yeah, so you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet t-shirts uh, directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. There's also sweatshirts and I think phone cases on there yeah. too. Russ Fenari had one of the phone cases. They look Did nice. really? Yeah, and I'm actually in the market for a new phone case, so oh, maybe that's what go. I'm going to get. All right. Um, and uh, and as a reminder, Fran and I don't don't take any money from that. That's not how we're getting rich. Uh, yeah. We still have our day jobs. We take all that cash and then give it to, to organizations that – uh, have been on the podcast that we've gotten to work with and gotten to know that really deserve it, um, doing boots on the ground stuff and, and working hard to put native plants in their habitats. Are we announcing today? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We okay. said we were. All right. You want to do it? You no, you got it? it. All right. I, you know, we we have reached a point where we have money to donate to another organization, and uh, we've chosen Bowman's Hill Wallflower Preserve mm-hmm. this time. Uh, they're doing such wonderful work. Um, and as a member, I, I go visit there all the time and it's, it, it's really like, it, it is a museum. It's getting yeah. to see things the way they're intended to be seen or, or had, had existed in the past. And they're doing such a wonderful work there that we would be happy to donate money to that. Mm-hmm. So our next, uh, check is going to, uh, Bowman's Hill Wildflower yeah. Preserve. So. Yeah. And I know Santino's a listener, so I'm not going to reach out to him. I'm going to wait till he listens. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Santino, you don't get that check until you write to us. Oh, so. Give us a nice thank you. No, that's, that's, those are Fran's words. Not nah, what? I didn't say that. <laughs> so, but um, you can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Uh, well, you're, I guess you're listening right now, aren't you? But yeah. if you aren't subscribed, you can do so on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, really wherever you consume your podcast, you can find us and subscribe there. That goes a long way. What goes even further is when you leave us a five-star review, especially if you do the little write-up. Not only do you get a shout-out from me on our Buzz episodes like you heard uh, with New Jersey and Vaxxed earlier, um, you also uh, are going to get a chance to win a flat of, of plants. 50-year-baceous plants. 50-year-baceous plants. Native plants. And um, and it also helps promote this message of native plants and gets it in front of more people. And I guess I shouldn't say in front of more people's eyes. It gets it into more people's ears. Yes. And that's uh, the important way for, like for the podcasting mission. So, um, Fran, do you have a secret today or do I, I have a secret I, today? I don't remember. I do. You know, and it's I, – I was thinking I, I know I ran it by it. And I know it's not plant-related, but – uh, when Rebecca McMacken was talking about people go to Brooklyn Bridge Park mm-hmm. to do a variety of things, one of which is is propose. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it would be funny to <laughs> to just share that I proposed in a mall. Yeah. Yeah. It's, to, it's the, the but, only the classiest establishment <laughs> for for a friend. <laughs> well, a little backstory. I'll I'll try to make it quick. But a we little. Walk, we walked right out of the hot topic and, uh, uh, <laughs> and yeah. we just. <laughs> <laughs> there was one of those gumball machines that had ring pops in it. So I got down on the knee. 
<laughs> I splurged with a quarter. <laughs> and and got uh, a I ring. splurged with a quarter, got a ring, and Agatha thought that I was trying to get it unjammed, and she thought I was proposing, and I've been too scared to not go with it So anymore, I just went so. with it. <laughs> no, well, you know, the, the, the plan was I was actually going to propose mm-hmm. at Longwood Gardens during mm-hmm. the, the Christmas display, and the ring showed up a day late. Mm-hmm. So we, we still had our trip to Longwood Gardens, which was a magical night. And we just happened to be in front of the fountains where I wanted to propose all by ourselves. Like, and you know how busy oh, that yeah. could be. Yeah. We ended up in the middle of the the lawn in front of the fountains mm-hmm. by ourselves. And then, and I was thinking, I was like, oh, what a, a wasted opportunity. Yeah. And um, there was another uh, plan that that also <laughs> the event got canceled. So um, we we revisited our first date, which was a very magical night for us. Which happened mm-hmm. to be the mall, and at the end of the night, we went one place. It was too crowded. We walked across the mall. We were there till it closed. We were the last people in, and it was raining. And they wanted us to go outside and walk all the way around the mall in the rain. Mm-hmm. And we're like, "Come on, man! We're like, we parked by the movie theater. We know those doors are open. Please, just let us go through the mall." And they did, and that's where we had our first mm-hmm. kiss. So we revisited where we had our first date. Same thing. It happened to rain. We went to the the place we were gonna go. Couldn't go. Ended up closing at the place. It was raining. They let us go through the mall again, and I mm-hmm. proposed. Yeah. Proposed. It was, it was. Yeah, it worked out. It worked out. So yeah. it was meant to be that way. Yeah, it wasn't supposed to be Longwood Gardens. Yeah, it was supposed we, to be the I, mall. I proposed in Jackson Square Park in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, and we were going to go to Galatoire's for dinner because my wife's an English teacher, and that was in the. I guess she taught a streetcar named Desire. Oh, um, awesome! By Tennessee Williams, and uh, so that was like a dinner plan. I'm like, oh well, we we. Well, we'll be Jackson Square Park for a part, and then we'll walk over to dinner, and that's where I'll propose. And, uh, and I was going to book a photographer to take pictures, but the person who – and why we did it where we did it yeah. is because someone – a photographer, a local, like um, – Blogger. Blogger had taken our picture there for, like, she took people in, like, good outfits. Yeah. So it was a fashion blogger. Ooh. That's what it was. Took our picture there. So I was going to reach out to her to come and take our picture again and uh, propose then. But she had moved to Maryland, and um, um, so I'm like, "Oh, I'll just find some person there and hand them my phone and hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> hope they don't run off with it." And uh, yeah, no, it worked out. Awesome. Yeah. So awesome. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, my secret was going to be that I did end up getting limes. So it just happened oh, a little late. That's true. <laughs> and I just, I just picked two deer ticks yeah. off me. So more to come on yeah. that. So, but there you go. That's that's our secret. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. As we mentioned, coming up next week, we have Perry from the Headwaters podcast, and uh, we're really excited to talk about uh, her journey with the white bark pine um, and national park, the the great work that National Park System does uh, and what it means to everyone else. So make sure you tune in for that. And until next time, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.